Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario is still in a state of emergency due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, you might think that means the provincial government is pulling out all the stops, but Queen's Park is still holding back funds that could save lives. Why? We'll talk about that. Is it feasible for the Ontario government to take over the for-profit, long-term care homes? And if so, what would that look like? We'll have that discussion as well. And health care will be President Biden's focus today. we got all the details from CBS Radio correspondent Steve Dorsey in Washington. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We spent a lot of time uh, this week and past week talking about... Uh, long-term care facilities here in the city and right across the province because they seem to be uh, one of the hot spots. Well, they are the hot spot, of course, for the COVID-19, not just new cases, but, of course, deaths. And there's been a lot of analysis done about this uh, by many, many people. We've had a number of wonderful guests on the program to talk about some of the shortcomings that are going on here. Uh, the other side of that doesn't seem to be a whole lot being done by the provincial government right now. And this new report is not going to make them look any better. Uh, a new report tracking billions of dollars the federal government has sent to the provinces in pandemic spending suggests some of that money is just sitting around unused. Uh, report author David McDonald says cash for school reopenings, wages, top-ups, worker uh, deemed to be essential, all that sort of stuff is just sitting there. This has been a federal affair in terms of spending. 92% of all the COVID dollars are coming from the federal government. 8% are coming from provincial governments. However, when you see all this federal money coming out the door, what's incredible is is that provinces haven't fully accessed it, even when there was no real impediment to doing so. So what's going on here? Uh, Randy Robinson is the Ontario Director for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Randy, thank you so much for uh, the time. Really appreciate you joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. You, uh, in the piece that, that I'm reading here today that uh, you, you, you wrote, uh, it, this, this really confirms what a lot of people have been saying. I mean, we see the daily briefings every day, Randy, and the premier's up there saying, you know, the province is doing this and the federal government's got to step up. Uh, uh, and as, as this report indicates, the federal government's done more than their share, financially anyway, uh, and, and wondering why is that money not being spent here in the province of Ontario? Have, did you get any answers to that? Well, it's almost impossible to describe the scale of the federal government intervention. It's like on the scale of World War II, only faster. So the amount of money and direct spending that the government of Canada has put into fighting COVID-19, mostly on the front of uh, businesses and individuals, is about $343 billion, which is like they took the entire federal budget for a year and spent it again. And in Ontario in particular, uh, that number, how it breaks down because of our share of the population, is about $136 billion. Uh, in contrast, you look at what the province has done, that's about $9 billion. So 94% of the money that's been spent on fighting COVID in all the different ways that we fight COVID has come from the federal government. And you might think, well, that makes perfect sense. The federal government's a lot bigger. And my response to that is, well, no, it's not, actually. Uh, because the province has jurisdiction over things like taking care of the municipalities, but especially health care and education, the typical spending in Ontario from the provincial government is more than the typical spending from the federal government in Ontario. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, uh, it's a real change in the way that, that money is allocated. And uh, you, you hit the nail on the head when you said that the, uh, the Ford government is continually calling for support from the federal government. I think by doing that, 
they are conceding that more money needs to be spent, but I don't think they're making the case that it has to be federal money. As our listeners know, because I've been going on about the long-term care facilities, and I'm, we're going to keep you know going after that until they finally do something about this. And we've had a number of different guests on that have been reporting on this, and I know that uh, that uh, the Center for Policy Alternatives has looked at this as well. Uh, and one of the things, I mean, the premier himself was on the show not too long ago, Andy, and, and said, you know, we're we're not going to do, you know, no, nothing's going to happen here until we get in here. We're going to analyze this, and then we'll spend whatever it takes to make this problem. He said that in the summer. He said it again in the fall. Uh, and and this number that, that you guys are looking at right now indicates that they're talking the talk, but they're, they're holding back money. I mean, they keep saying that we're not going to do this. Other provinces are addressing the problem. Ontario just seems to, uh, to be to be waiting. And, I'm, and I guess the question we have to ask is, what are they waiting for? This is supposed to be for crisis situations. Uh, we're in a crisis, aren't we? Well, we absolutely are. I mean, you talk about, I can't say that I've watched every single news conference that the Premier has done since COVID-19 began, but I've watched a lot of them. And the one that sticks in my mind is that one on May 26th, when he came out and talked about the report from the military yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, the terrible conditions in, um, in those long-term care homes that they were looking at at the time. And, uh, you know, I go online, I look in the Hamilton Spectator, I see not May 26th, but January 26th, Grace Villa is uh, talking about exactly the same kinds of troubles. And uh, and uh, at the time, back in January, not back in January, back in May, you know, the Premier used words like disgusting and horrific. And he said, and I'm just looking at my notes here, he said, like you, like you just indicated, I'll spare no expense to make sure we fix the system. That's what we're going to do. We're going to make sure we fix the system. And yet we're back exactly where we were actually we're worse off now well this is it right the second wave not in long-term care yet but overall we've had more deaths in the second wave than we had in the first and i think a lot of people who not very long from now will be referred to as voters uh would look at the first wave and they would say well nobody knew this was coming i'm not surprised that there was a little lack of preparation but the second wave is a whole different story. I don't think there's been a serious pandemic in human history that just came and then went away. There's always a second wave, and there's frequently a third wave. And sometimes the second wave uh, is the worst one. So that seems to be where we're at now. Yeah, but with that happening, and, and you know, even if you want to give these guys a mulligan and say, okay, maybe they weren't prepared because who knew it was going to be this enormous? Uh, I, I can understand that, but ha- your point's well taken. We've already been through this. We, t- we were told there's going to be a second wave. We were told it was going to start in the fall. We are told it was probably going to be worse. The federal government has stepped up, and I mean, you know, to their credit, uh, with some pressure from the opposition parties, even some of the programs they've instituted, they've topped up saying, okay, that wasn't enough, let's give them more. Uh, and this is one of these areas where you expect the province to simply use act as basically as a flow through to get that money to where it needs to be and they're sitting on a substantial pile of money here right now and you got to wonder what are they going to use it for because apparently uh, they're not using it to battle covid well half of the money that the province says that they've spent on fighting covid is is as you say it's a flow through from the federal government total spending is about I think it's $17.9 billion that the province uh, has spent, but 8.9 of that is, is federal money. So it's about exactly $9 billion that the, the province has spent of its own money. And, you know, remember, this is in areas of provincial jurisdiction. This is health care. This is education. This is looking after the municipalities. And uh, really, uh, 
we shouldn't be looking around for who's going to spend money on this when we know what the jurisdiction is. If you look, uh, one of the things that's been identified by experts other than me, healthcare experts, is that uh, long-term care simply doesn't have enough staffing. And yeah. uh, mm-hmm. our best estimate is that we need about $1.8 billion to bring staffing levels up to where they need to be. And the government, after a long time, uh, six months or so, I think it was in November, when they agreed, yeah, that's the right number, but it's going to take us until 24-25 to uh, ramp that up. Meanwhile, in Quebec, in June, the government said we need 10,000 more uh, personal support workers. And they put out the call and they got 69,000 applications. They ran people through the training program. Some people quit. They ended up with 7,000. Uh, they've got 7,000 new people working in um, in long-term care in Quebec that they didn't have six months ago, even five months ago. Um, you know, in World War II, at the very beginning anyway, we trained fighter pilots in six months. So I really think there's no excuse not to be putting everything we've got into staffing. And if we really are sparing no expense, we're not saying, oh, we're going to do it if we can get the money from the federal government or if we can find it elsewhere. We're just saying we're going to do it. And the excuse they've given for that when we brought it to their attention, of course, was, well, look, it would be unfair to the operators to simply say, okay, you've got to jack those wages up and, and you know, increase the, the money's there to do it. It wasn't, it's not going to come out of their pocket. It's coming from the federal government. That's where Quebec got their money from. Ontario got, well, probably a more of an allotment than Quebec did. And, and yet we're saying it's going to take us two and a half to three years to do what they did in six weeks. Well, the province is insisting that, you know, none of this can be fixed without help from the federal government. And, you know, in the case of Ontario, if I were if I were in some of the smaller provinces that have uh, less fiscal capacity, um, I would I would be more inclined to think that way. But in the case of Ontario, uh, we're a net contributor to, you know, every federal program that there is. Uh, really, what the premier is saying is, if there are going to be taxes collected to pay for this, I want Justin Trudeau to collect them, even though he's collecting them from Ontarians. And uh, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, conservative people have been saying for a long time there's only one taxpayer, and it's true. Uh, so if we really need the money, and we're really talking about where to find it, we don't have to go to the federal government to recirculate it back to us, you know. And part B to that, too, is you remember that uh, conference call that uh, the, the Prime Minister had with the Premiers, I guess it was about two, three weeks ago now, uh, where the Prime Minister started talking about maybe we need to have some sort of a national strategy about long-term care. Maybe we need to have some, some national standards. And, and Premier Ford and, and Kenny and a bunch of others, Mo, and, uh, basically said, hey, hands off. Uh, this is our responsibility. You can't tell us how to run this, these things. We want your money, but just you know, just write the check and leave us alone. <laughs> well, the way they've been doing it clearly is not sustainable, and it's not effective. Maybe they do need some oversight from a federal level, but they don't seem to want to go there. That, now we're getting into a territorial fight. Yeah, well, and I think one of the things that we're looking at overall is that we're, we're going to have to revamp Confederation because we can see in a crisis that uh, the provinces are not doing what they're what they're supposed to be doing. But uh, if there's going to be federal funding coming to a province, or if there's going to be provincial funding going to a municipality or any funding going to anybody, we expect there to be strings attached. We expect there to be a chain of accountability. Um, I mean, I would, my daughter, who's 16, would love it if I said, yeah, here's $1,000, go do whatever you want. 
I never do that. <laughs> you know, uh, the, uh, this, the, the accountability is so important, and I really believe that the, uh, the, those premiers that you mentioned are kind of talking out of both sides of their mouth and when they say that they are accountable and yet they refuse to be accountable for, for how that is spent and setting those standards. And the Canada Health Act is based on the idea that uh, the federal government has no particular jurisdiction. It only has the power of the purse. And with that power of the purse comes the ability to get the provinces to uh, deliver programs in, in ways that are up to national standards, right? Well, absolutely, and, and and we get that, and I understand that they're not simply going to roll over and say, sure, Prime Minister, do whatever you want, uh, but at least have a discussion about that. I mean, they keep asking for more help on this, and when they say leave us alone, uh, it almost sends a, a message here that w w what we're doing is all right. We've, we've got a handle on this. Well, they don't. When you look at the statistics here, Randy, the number of, of new cases, the number of deaths, I mean, look at Barry. I mean, you know, at, at Roberta's place. I mean, the whole facility mm -hmm. is just and, – and the number of deaths out there. Everybody, staff, patients, everybody – as, as just what I think there's only two people that work there that don't have COVID-19 at this stage, and so of course they're isolating at home right now. That's not supposed to happen uh, with a government that understands what the problems are and has been given the money to fix it. Yep, they haven't done it. Well, all I can do is agree with you, Bill. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's exactly what's been happening. Uh, and uh, one of the things that really struck me in August, uh, uh, the premier did a news conference along with the. Uh, then finance minister rod phillips who was still in the country at the time and uh you know one of the things he said was we're going to continue to be very fiscally conservative and uh we shouldn't be surprised i don't think that a conservative government is is, is cutting corners everywhere and 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 uh supporting private operators that's kind of what they do. But I think a lot of people thought in the early days of the pandemic that the premier had turned over a new leaf and he'd seen the power uh, of government and he was willing to use the power of government to, you know, to protect the population. Uh, and he has done that to a degree, but time and time again, we see this kind of holding back and this kind of hesitation. So just on a different topic uh, in, in, uh, in January, the uh, province launched this uh, small business support grant program. Well, this is 10 months after the pandemic began. And, you know, I live on a street in Toronto that has a lot of businesses and restaurants that have closed. And, you know, maybe if that money had come forward earlier, uh, those people would still be in business. But, you know, so why do we wait 10 months and why does the money only cover the period since Boxing Day? You know, these are the kinds of questions we have. But uh, again and again, you've seen this delay, this hesitation. And if we know anything about COVID-19 from places that have been more successful in fighting it, if you don't hesitate, you come out hard, you hit, you smack it down before it can get big. Because when it turns into a forest fire and you're chasing around with a fire hose, you're in a lot of trouble. Well... And, and your quote from uh, from eight months ago, because uh, I still remember that that media conference. That's one of the ones I did see too, where the mm -hmm. premier said, "I will spare no expense to make sure we fix the system." 
Uh, and now he's saying we need to be fiscally, you know, responsible. I mean, they, they just can't help themselves. I mean, it's always about the bottom line. And we know that's happening. You know, you talk to people in the education system and, you know, they, they got a report from Sick Kids Hospital about how to bring kids back to school last September. And they just cherry picked things out of there and said, we'll do this, we'll do this. They didn't, they didn't follow through. And it's, it's all about the bottom line with these guys. And I understand fiscal responsibility. I get that. But, you know, I, I, I thought the priority here was to keep people out of the hospital and, and to try to you know, bend the curve, knock the curve down with COVID, not to make sure that, you know, our bottom line looks pretty good. We'll look after that. We do need to look after that. But let's keep everybody healthy and get everybody healthy first. Yeah, and I don't think there's any question that the places that have been successful uh, economically are the ones that have put health first and dealt with the health issues. Because once you do that, then you can go back to kind of some version of normal. But if you're always uh, opening up a little bit, closing a little bit, opening here, but closing there, um, you never get it under control and the economy doesn't come back the way you want it to. Exactly. A great piece. I just uh, direct people to the, uh, the webpage here of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and they can read up on this stuff for themselves. Randy, as always, thanks so much. Great having you on the program today. Thanks, Bill. I really appreciate it. Take care. Randy Robinson, of course, Ontario Director for the uh, CCPA. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Over the last couple of days, we've been talking with uh, some members of uh, Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care. This is a group of Ontario doctors who have uh, banded together, all, all with experience, of course, in long-term care, uh, and also very, very concerned about what's happening in the province of Ontario with long-term care, or maybe what's not happening, as the case might be. Uh, and they've come up with a series of recommendations that they would like the uh, province to adopt, or at least study anyway. And uh, yesterday on the program, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, uh, one of the members, one of the founding members, as a matter of fact, of that organization, uh, told us that nine out of ten of the horror stories that you hear in long-term care are in for-profit homes. Every time these terrible homes, these terrible documented cases of mass negligence, they're all for-profit. Nine out of ten of all the homes, and I mean ninety percent of all the homes taken over by the voluntary management management order for profit. <laughs> Five of the six military homes for profit. So, not surprisingly, one of the recommendations from uh, Doctors for Justice and Long Term Care is to end for profit long term care here in the province of Ontario. Well, is that feasible? I mean, even if the government wanted to go down that road, and I think that's a long shot anyway, uh, what would it look like, and is it absolutely necessary to do? Let's have that conversation, and uh, so please welcome to the program Dr. James Thiessen. Uh, Dr. Thiessen is the Director, Master of Health Administration and Community Care, and an Associate Professor at Ryerson University. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you're with us today. Good morning, Bill, and thanks for um, having me on the show. Well, there's so many people that we've talked to over the last couple of months, I guess almost a year now since wave one of, of COVID-19. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're all shocked and, and horrified by some of the stories we've heard about what's going on in long-term care facilities. Uh, I, I, I'm not surprised that that this group has finally come together and said, look, we've got to make some recommendations here. Uh, let's let's talk about the things that, uh, that uh, Dr. Stamatopoulos mentioned to us yesterday, and the, right at the top of that list, ending for-profit long-term care. The, the numbers that she's quoting seem to indicate that there's a real problem there. Mind you, you know that there are other reports that have been done by other groups that are saying that's not the case at all. What's, what's your read on this? I agree with the doctor, and, this is, and the, um, he, many, there's now I guess, almost 600 that have signed yeah. that letter, um, in that the, the data do show that there have been more um, real catastrophes in the privately owned long-term care facilities. Um, however, I think it's really important to remember that um, most of the beds in Ontario are um, being run by or operated by 
um, private um, mm-hmm. owners. And there's a huge variety in, um, in, in the capabilities of, of these across the province. So I, I think it's a quick fix that I don't think is going to answer and address all the issues. Well, and the numbers don't lie. You're absolutely right about that. I think it's only 68% or something like that of the beds are, are run for these for profits. And, yeah. and I, I want to be clear again, because every time we bring this up, I'm going to get emails from people. We're not <laughs> suggesting every one of these for profit homes is, is, a, is a dungeon and a hellhole. Yeah. Uh, but there are some, some glaring examples where this needs to be done, uh, which is why I can understand what's going on here. Uh, and, but, but where, where do we begin to address the problem? You know, we, we talked about uh, the, the comments that uh, the Premier Ford made back in the summertime after he got the, uh, that report from the, the Canadian military who had to go in and actually take over uh, the work in a lot of these facilities. Uh, and he said it was disgusting and, and said, you know, he will spare no expense. Well, they've, they've spared a lot of expense yet because not a whole lot has been accomplished. Yes, they haven't acted appropriately. And it's, it's a tough... Um a tough problem to, to jump on, and as your um, earlier guest was saying, the issue is right now that while the disease can show up almost anywhere, it's almost, almost random, the, the difference is whether it can be controlled once it's in the facility. And we've had some terrible outliers, including Grace Villa, of course, you would know yeah. a lot about that. Mm-hmm. But I think that, but more broadly, the, the longer term, um, I mean, we're dealing with a, a short term issue now, and, and you just need more money and more staff, and however you can mobilize that as quickly as possible is, is what you have to do. But, but more broadly, it's, I think it's, it's, it's about money and regulation. Um, anyone who's had uh, loved ones in long-term care facility before COVID knows that those places are stretched. Um, and one of the real problems with the long-term care um, facilities that are run by private organizations, um, privately owned, they, they, don't, they don't have as much money to work with. The public ones can access subsidies from the city. They often get their land subsidies or they can use the land. And of course, not-for-profits can raise money as as charities and get donations. So, and and generally, you just need more money. And when the other thing I'm sure you've heard over the last number of months, and it was again addressed, there's a shortage of uh, personal support workers. And in any other sector, what do you do when you've got a shortage? You pay them more. And the envelopes of money between the fees and the subsidies these operators get um, aren't sufficient to deliver appropriate care. And and particularly under the um, stressful and um, conditions that unfold when a pandemic hits. There's a, there's always going to be a political element to this. I mean, because it's politicians who make decisions. I mean, we need to be pragmatic about that. And and I understand that there are some people that just philosophically don't like uh, the idea that for-profit agencies work in this particular thing. They they should be they they feel like all healthcare we have in this province, hospitals, etc., uh, should be open to all and run by the government. I get that. That's that's their mindset. Uh, but on the other hand, I also know I was in city politics for ten years as well uh, that. Private-public partnerships can be effective in some ways. Now, you, we can have the debate as to whether or not they're effective here, but what makes them work, as you well know, Doctor, is oversight. Uh, you've got to have parameters. You've got to say these are the boundaries, these are the regulations you need to follow, and you have to make sure that the people that are participating, in this case the, the, the for-profits, adhere to those. And I, I don't know that we have that. I know the province says, oh, sure we do. Well, they don't do the inspection, so how would they know? Well, they, they do inspections, and if you um, do listen to the um, private operators, they will say they're 
too many regulators um, that, that get in the way of them doing their day-to-day work. However, um, yeah, th- th- you, you certainly do need more oversight. But I think another thing that's kind of lost in this discussion is you, you, you need management oversight, of course. But it's, I think it's really important, and this is the strength of not-for-profits, is that their boards are much more hands-on um, overseeing individual sites of the not-for-profit operators. Um, because so, so they've, they've got, they don't have their mitts in the operation, but they're, they have a good, um, they hire the directors of these places and keep close watch. That kind of direct oversight, site by site oversight is not as um, prevalent in the um, private um, institutions, particularly the chains. And, and, and therein lies the problem and the breakdown. And I, I know that the province will come back, as you mentioned, Doctor, and say, well, yeah, we do do uh, inspections on these sorts of things. But, I mean, yeah, we knew that they did reduce the number of inspections, of course, uh, two years ago in 2019. Yeah. Uh, and last year, in the height of the pandemic, when we thought, well, they're going to get their act together, they only did a handful of them, of the 600 and uh, some odd facilities in the province. I, I think it was less than 20 inspections right across the province. I mean, that's that's not sufficient, to, especially when we're in a, a, what I would consider to be a critical situation. Situation. So I, I think, you know, if we're going to look at fixing this, everybody, I think, has to accept some culpability here, and everybody has to step up, including the government. I, 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 I don't dispute that. Um, they were, and they, they were caught um, unprepared, and as everyone's saying, and as again, you were discussing with the previous uh, guest, um, there's really no excuse for them um, not being prepared for the second wave. And there, there certainly needs to be oversight. Um I think that right now they're still putting out fires, which is really shouldn't be happening almost a year into this thing. And I wonder about, and I'm not suggesting, by the way, that the operators of any of these facilities are you know, sitting behind closed doors in the boardroom saying, you know, mm-hmm. we're just going to save a few bucks. We don't care about the health of the people. I understand they're probably very well-meaning. Uh, but, you know, th- this is why there has to be oversight to make sure that things are going to be done properly. Uh, and, and the, you know, the, the care of the patients uh, is going to be the number one priority. And uh, to use the, the Premier's expression, whatever it costs, you know, that is the cost of looking after people in, in those those environments. And I guess we want to make sure that that's happening. But how can a province, well, let's use Quebec as an example then, Doctor, who, let's face it, have the same problems. They, you, you could argue even in larger numbers than we did in Ontario in the first wave. They addressed it in the summertime. They did the hiring right away. They trained the new people to move into these facilities. They paid them more. And, and you know, it, it seemed to be effective. They did that in a space of about six or seven weeks. Our government is saying, well, it's going to take us two and a half years at least to, to get to where we should be from, from that standpoint. Uh, there's, a, I, I think, a sense of immediacy here that, that we share, but I'm not so sure the government sees. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, yeah, they're, they were, um, the government, Ontario government was responding to policy papers sort of saying, yeah, we just need, we need more people, more hours and all this stuff. And right, it, it really isn't, uh, wasn't pitched properly for the immediate demands that we have right now. Um, and, and frankly, I don't know why. I, I wish I, I, I could explain why. Um, they, I think they're just um, counting on putting out the fires and riding this out and hoping for the best. Um, but um, it's just not working. Uh, it's, and I agree with you completely, Bill. And I can understand the frustration that uh, that yourself and others uh, that feel about what's going on, which obviously led to the you know the founding of, of Doctors for Justice and Long Term Care. Uh, and I can understand why they're asking for some of these things. And by the way, a lot of the recommendations here are, are 
what I would consider to be common sense, uh, you know, uh, uh, ensure that uh, formal partnerships are established between hospitals, primary care, and all long-term care homes. Yeah, yeah, we need to be talking with each other and understand that they're part of that whole package of health care uh, and, and has to be treated as such as an integral part of it as well. Uh, they talked about minimum pay standards. I don't think there's any disagreement with that. Uh, ensure that at least 70% of staff at each one of these facilities are full-time. Uh, that's continuities, that's all. But the, the one point, I guess, as you mentioned, that's a real sticking point here, uh, is they're, they're suggesting that you end for profit LTC. And that's not going to happen with a conservative government. It's just that that's that's not where they go, and I get that. And but I think we have to understand that that's just not going to be on the table. So what we need to do is manage what we've got right now and try to improve it. And I, and I think if they take that kind of an approach as opposed to let's just get rid of these private operators altogether, uh, at least you might get people to sit down at the table and say, okay, let's have that discussion. I, I agree with you, Bill. Um, it's it's it's. It's not going to work if you only get to say, okay, we're just going to wipe the slate uh, clean and get rid of all these um, for-profit operators. And in fact, I think you're going to have a more healthy sector if you have some a mix of for-profit, the not-for-profit, then public, because they all have different ways of doing things, and they're going to pick up innovations and um, ideas differently and have different orientations. So if you have different organizational forms like that, um, competing in the same market, I think you're going to have a better and more robust system. If you have, um, if, they're all, if they're all municipally owned or publicly owned, you're going to have a sameness that's not necessarily going to be as um, vibrant as, as it could be. And and we need that. I mean, I, I, again, I, I think you're you're exactly on the right track here, Doctor. I mean, we need investments, and we also need input from the private sector into situations like that. Even with our healthcare system outside of long-term care facilities, uh, I, I don't have a problem with the private sector coming in, uh, and and because that's where a lot of the innovation comes from. Uh, you know, I understand that there still has to be accessibility for all for that, and that, that has to be one of the standards that we need to maintain. But we need to open our eyes, and I guess maybe even open our minds uh, to the fact that, look, at, we've got to have a sense of partnership and cooperation here. So uh, instead of making these out to be the bad guys, let's just say, look, at you know, your standards here don't seem to be as high as we want them to be. Let's bring them up. Let's see how much is it going to cost to do this? What do you need to do this? And let's make this happen. Absolutely. And so, again, money and regulation. And one thing I'll just add, and this, this is a longer-term uh, issue, is that the, the sector, this kind of long-term care sector, is a unique separate sector which is different from hospitals, different from primary care, though it's more linked to primary care, like the, docket, the family doctor, than it is to hospitals. Hospitals mm-hmm. are about fixing you and sending you home. The long-term care stuff is a mix of social care, and and some medical care to maintain people, not cure them. And what we really should be doing, is, as um, they've done in Germany and Japan, is they actually have a separate insurance fund for long-term care. And and so the hospitals the hospitals will gobble up extra money <laughs> because they're you know they're very expensive. They're terrific organizations, but they have a different mission than the long-term care. So I think we should just have a separate pot of money for long-term care and certainly integrate it properly with the primary doctors and hospitals, but make sure there's enough money in that pot to properly pay good staff and provide good care to our seniors. It it seems to me, as you look at some of the concerns and some of the debate that's happened over the last number of years, that said that maybe one of the root problems here is that the system that we're using here in Canada, our, our public health system, uh, is basically the same one that we instituted back in 1964. I mean, there have been some variations to it, but it's, it's almost like using 20th century uh, mindset 
for 21st century problems. I mean, we're living longer now. I, I bet in 1964 that wasn't very much of a discussion about long-term care or even hospice care. I think it was probably non-existent back in those mm-hmm. days. We need that stuff now, and that's got to be part of the system, and we don't seem to, to be able to connect the dots here to make that happen, to make that part of the, uh, what I think a very important part and a very necessary part of the system is, you know, if, if you know, if back in 64, I think the average life expectancy for males was about 68 years old. Uh, right. You know, it's into the 80s and 90s in some cases right now, uh, and we have to prepare for that. And we have to expect that, you know, that's something that we're going to have to make an accommodation for. That, I, that I agree. And, and it's catching up to us. And as I was saying earlier, anyone who had loved ones in long-term care before would be familiar with the problems that were exposed and really drastically exposed by um, the COVID pandemic. We, 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 we need a different approach. It needs, and actually, I'm not <laughs> pitching. Uh, well, I, I guess I am pitching our program. We have a Master's of Health Administration at Ryerson that I'm director of this program, but it's particularly Master Health Administration Community Care. So we have a, a unique program that's directed at um, that part of healthcare um, where it's really important. And you cannot read a release press release from the ministry which says we have to have care at home. Um, and that's another piece of the long-term care package, of course. Um, no, it it health, absolutely is, stuff, yeah. Anyway, but I, I agree with you, Bill. We have to take a, another look and make sure the resources are there to take care of our elderly. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, and you're, you know, your primary care, the hospitals are, are going to take the lion's share of that money, and you're right. Their job is to fix us up and get us back. Uh, but at some point, you know, those facilities are, are overtaxed already, and not just because of COVID. Uh, it's because yeah. some people are in those facilities that should be in long-term care or care at home. Uh, and, you know, the, the government's got to understand that and make that part of the broader horizon. Uh, and the other element to this, too, is, is I think this is how you began the discussion, too, is everything that we've talked about here uh, and everything that, uh, that the, uh, the, the doctors for justice and long-term care have talked about, these are, to use your medical phrases, doctor, a pre-existing condition. This all started long before COVID came along and the pandemic came along. Uh, what the pandemic did is just exacerbated the situation and probably brought it onto the front burner. Yeah, and let's hope that uh, we get some long-term um, outcomes associated with this. It's, it's certainly in the picture now, and we should just take this opportunity. Unfortunately, a lot of people have paid with their lives. Um, you know, our, a lot of seniors, 3,500 or so, have died in, the, um, in those facilities. Um, it's really un- very unfortunate, but we shouldn't waste this moment. Great conversation with you, Doctor. Thanks so much for this, and uh, and congratulations, by the way, on the program too. I know Ryerson's doing some fabulous, uh, innovative things uh, in healthcare too. And uh, as uh, uh, the director for the Master of Health Administration and Community Care program, uh, we look for good things from that too. That's, uh, stay in touch, and thanks again for today. Absolutely, thank you. We've got great students. They're doing the heavy lifting. Not <laughs> <me>. <laughs> well, somebody's got to call the shots, and that's you. Thanks again, Doctor. Thanks a lot. Dr. James Thiessen, of course, uh, from Ryerson University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of activity in Washington. Uh, Joe Biden, of course, is one week into his presidency, and uh, he's hit the ground running. Uh, healthcare will be the president's focus today. CBS News has learned that uh, some of the executive actions uh, the president is expected to take in this afternoon are going to include uh, reversing at least three anti-abortion rights bills. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Steve Dorsey. Steve, of course, CBS Radio correspondent in Washington. Uh, Steve, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Hey, it's great to talk to you this morning. 
it's uh, it's only been seven days, but he is uh, uh, President Biden doing, I guess, just about everything he can to try to untrump uh, some of the policies here. Uh, it, there was a lot of talk yesterday about the environment. Uh, today is health care. How's this being received down the Beltway, Steve? Are, are they impressed with this? Are Republicans upset about the way that uh, everything they've worked for for the last four years seems to be going out the window? Uh, I think upset, but uh, not uh, unexpected. Uh, in, in fact, some of these measures he's taking today, including uh, one uh, called the Mexico, Mexico City policy, um, have, have long been rescinded by Democrats and then put back into place by Republicans like Donald Trump. This has been kind of an ongoing ping-pong battle for, for years. Of course, he's taking another uh, executive action today based on uh, Obamacare and reopening online health insurance market exchanges for people that lost insurance in the pandemic that'll start february 15th and remain open for three months um and this really comes on the heels of uh some major uh, climate action he had uh, yesterday as well and and some uh, appointments by the way the cabinet which seemed to be going along at, at a pretty rapid pace these days a couple of other appointments and some other interviews that went on like this uh, we got our first right. glimpse really uh, also yesterday uh, steve of of john Kerry, who of course is uh, is a special liaison in on the environmental issues uh not surprising, I, um, from my standpoint anyway, uh, to see Joe Biden leaning on a guy like John Kerry. But, uh, but talk to us about the role he's going to play in this. Well, John Kerry uh, is described by President Biden as a, a longtime friend. And uh, he'll be the administration's lead on climate change policy. Uh, and uh, that'll be important because John Kerry uh, will be the first uh, in this job, in this role, and he'll also uh, be on Joe Biden's National Security Council, which uh, will be the first uh, for a climate representative of any kind in the administration to to be on such a, a high level of the executive branch. And of course, uh, his former role, of course, uh, in in the Obama administration, uh, he can lean heavily on that as well. And we've already seen the president reaching out. Uh, the first call he made officially, of course, was to uh, Justin Trudeau uh, on Friday, and they spoke for quite a long time. Uh, there was a phone call uh, between uh, President Biden and, uh, and and President Putin uh, the other day too. And I, I, well, we got a little more transparency than we used to get uh, when Donald Trump would have these phone calls uh, with uh, with Mr. Putin. Uh, what's what's your read on exactly what was discussed? And, and and the relationship between Putin and Biden. Well, um, Joe Biden is, is is hoping to make it clear that he wants to have frank discussions uh, about all issues with Vladimir Putin. Uh, a public departure from the Trump administration uh, in his conversations with uh, Putin so far. Uh, Mr. Biden says they discussed Alexei Navalny, that opposition leader who was poisoned uh, in Russia and also imprisoned right now. Uh, they discussed uh, uh, the new START treaty and, and renewing that to prevent uh, the growth of nuclear weapon stockpiles. Uh, and uh, they're also working on, obviously, on Ukraine, too, which continues to be a lingering issue. Uh, a very much of an issue, certainly, yes, because of, uh, of, of what happened in the last couple of hours and the Russian presence still on the border there and, and the concern that's going on. Is, is this going to be an antagonistic relationship, or is there, is there an opportunity to, to build some bridges? Obviously, it's going to be a much different relationship uh, than Donald Trump had with Putin. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, certainly if uh, the Biden administration sees progress uh, with some of their action items with Russia, there could be more of a diplomatic opening, especially when it comes to sanctions. I think that's still really far off right now, uh, but we haven't seen the kind of... Um, rhetoric from russia that indicates they're not open to, to working with joe biden yet 
when we look at international relations, like uh, what we've been talking about here, Steve, uh, has has the president given any indication right now about uh, where he's looking and how he's looking at uh, organizations like NATO, for instance, and, and the G7? Uh, the, the President Trump, of course, during his time in the White House, uh, was clearly not a, a big fan of NATO. Uh, he made some, you know, rather derogatory comments about the effectiveness or lack of effectiveness, of, I guess, of NATO, and uh, insisted that uh, the other member nations pay a lot more money than they had been paying, etc. 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 Joe Biden, of course, has a very solid background in foreign relations, and during his time in the Senate, and of course as Vice President in the Obama administration, uh, do you see a regeneration of, of, of relationships with NATO members and G7 members? Um, I definitely do, because uh, we've already seen uh, the uh, Biden administration take steps to reengage internationally, including uh, at the UN uh, and uh, with the World Health Organization, so and the Paris Climate Accord as well. So I, I don't think it's unimaginable that the, the, they'll do that on this front as well. Uh, very quickly, I, I, I really appreciate your time on this. Uh, the Senate has been busy, as we mentioned, uh, with confirmation hearings for members of the Biden cabinet, but also, of course, uh, the back and forth about the, the uh, second impeachment of Donald Trump. Uh, Rand Paul's motion, uh, supported by the Republicans, pretty much indicated that there's not going to be enough votes there. Uh, you know, that 17, uh, that number of 17 Republicans that were supposed to come on side uh, in favor of impeachment to make it go through is probably not going to happen. So this morning, of course, you're reporting on CBS News that uh, Democratic Senator Tim Kaine is discussing uh, a censure resolution as an alternative right. to that. Uh, is that going to carry it? Because I get the sense from uh, Senator Paul's comments uh, the other day that, uh, that they, they don't think there's any culpability on the president's part here at all. So I, is this even an option they might consider? That's something that, uh, you know, a lead senator is is drawing up. The re- resolution hasn't been uh, seen, really, uh, by the Senate just yet. But he's floating that idea that if Republicans perhaps won't... Um, convict President Trump in a future trial that they could at least offer uh, or agree to a censure resolution as uh, as any kind of matter. But we've already seen the res- Republican resistance to that uh, with signals from their leadership to say it's time to move on. Well, we'll see how that debate goes uh, later this week, too, and uh, whether or not Senator Keane's going to have any success. And as always, I'll be watching for your reporting and listening for your reporting on CBS Radio. Steve, thank you so much for the time today. It was great talking with you. Hey, thank you. Take care. Steve Dorsey, CBS Radio correspondent in Washington. Uh, very active times going on down there, of course, with all the activity with the new administration. And uh, as the president himself has said about rebuilding relationships with uh, other nations, uh, which is going to be a key part of that. And as Steve mentioned, even though uh, uh, John Kerry is uh, going to be looking after the environment portfolio to a large extent, uh, his experience in, in foreign relations is going to be key, I guess, in into rebuilding some of those bridges that have existed. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.